Fresh Brains. Hi, I'm Bill Gross. Today, Carl Yannick is going to be going over outcomes in severe TBI. Now, whether we verbalize it or not, we all make predictions about TBI outcome all the time. And frequently, those decisions actually guide our treatment and our triage of patients. Now, of course, we all feel like we're good at predicting outcome. But if you actually look at the data, how good are we? How many people actually recover from severe TBI? If you're in any way involved in the care of severe TBI patients, I think you're going to find this discussion really interesting. Hope you enjoy. So today we're talking about traumatic brain injury. Now, this is a huge subject, and it's got sure. a lot of huge uh, divisions. But for us today, we're going to talk about outcomes, because that's what interests people most oh, yeah. about TBI. Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of like clinical decision making that needs to be made around outcomes. And a lot of times it's not so clear. Right. And that lack of clarity and I would say the position of different physicians Mm -hmm. in the process of TBI recovery kind of dictates their perception of outcomes. Outcome in TBI is a difficult problem. We there's a lot of there's a lot of clinical decisions that need to be made, and frequently it's not a very clear situation. We're not, we're not really sure what we should do, what the outcome's going to be, and I'm curious, is there evidence, are there guidelines? We talk about this stuff a lot, and something that comes up a lot and something that's important a lot, but what's the actual data behind, do people get better after severe TBIs? So there is a lot of data around that. Uh-huh. But one of the first things that we need to recognize, though, is our own bias. And there's actually papers on our own bias about this outcome. Sure. So those people that are there for the first part of it, say the neurosurgeon that does the crany, there actually is data that shows that that neurosurgeon might have a sense that there is a much more negative outcome than what actually happens. Sure. And they actually looked at this. And it comes down to there's a lot of variation in practice patterns here. You have some people that go all the way for everything. You have some people that say, hey, you know what? These guys do really poorly. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, we all know miracles that have happened. We know that the one guy that looked like he was going to do really poorly. Oh, sure. And then he comes back and he walks around and he says, yeah. hey, everybody, how you doing? Yeah. I'm like, per- what are you doing? He's like, oh, I'm back at work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Parti- I mean, particularly with brain stuff, we like in, g- in general in medicine, we see you know, variation in outcomes. But the variation that we see in a lot of these brain injuries is just, I mean, it's amazing what the brain can recover from sometimes. And we don't have, we don't have a good enough grasp of how the brain works and recovers to really say who's gonna, you know, how, how mechanistically this stuff works. Uh, So we, there, there's a lot of these like miracle surprises that we see sometimes. Right. And, you know, the fact that there are surprises le- kind of lets you know that, you know, we, we might not know everything about this. So yeah. because of this difference in outlooks, though, you have some people that will advocate for withdrawal of care mm-hmm. in an early time frame. You'll have some people advocate for, you know, he looks bad right now. He's going to keep looking bad. Yeah. For a long time, potentially, but he could still recover. Like you were just saying about our different biases, one of the strong biases that I think a lot of us have is a lot of us, particularly the people working in the acute setting, all we see is the acute setting. And a lot of these recoveries happen after significant delays. So when you say, you know, is someone going to recover? I mean, if they're going to recover six months, a year from now, 
you know, are, are the people that work in the ICU ever going to see that and know? So, I mean, our, our experience, for example, our, our meaning like the acute, acute treatment team, we might see all of these patients with really bad outcomes, but is that just because we never see the recovery because the recovery never happens, you know, until like six months after they leave. But at the same time, to support someone through this recovery is extremely costly process, money-wise, but also more importantly for the patient's family. They could be holding out for a vehicle for who knows how long. Yeah. I mean, at some point, we need to make decisions. that We can't just say, well, we'll just... We'll just support everyone forever. Like that's not a that's not a solution. We need to we need to somehow make prognostic decisions in these people. Um, but how how do we do that? And what what data do we have to support these decisions? Right. That's that's where it comes down to our ability to prognosticate early and the and the incentive to pro- prognosticate yeah. early. Yeah. That it's actually it's actually a clinically important question. Right. So we'll start off by looking a little bit at what where things are now, especially when it comes to the biases. There actually are a couple papers on this. One came out in 1986. It was a while ago, but it, it was kind of informed by there was some recent data at that point that showed that some of the folks with severe TBI did pretty poorly. Now, this is coming out around the same time as uh, in, improved ICU care. Yeah improved imaging. In a lot of these studies of severe TBI, especially older studies, you have to take it into the context of the times, you know, because things have changed a lot in recent times in things like ICU care, you know, ventilator care, the way that we treat ICP, all sorts of things have changed recently. So when when you're looking back at studies in like 70s, 80s, you know, the outcomes might be significantly different nowadays. Right. And Part of the outcome, too, is recognizing that someone's going to have a poor outcome if you withdraw care. It's really important in looking at this paper from 1986 with Barlow in the journal Neurosurgery. You see these neurosurgeons, uh, 74% believe that they could estimate prognosis at 24 hours. Uh-huh. And then 42% had that prognosis determine how management played out. Hmm. So what you're saying is in, in this study, the neurosurgeons were estimating which ones that were going to do poorly and the ones that were going to do poorly, they would withdraw care and then obviously they would do poorly. So it's almost like a, a self-reinforcing prophecy exactly. of I know who's going to do poorly because those are the ones we withdraw care on and then they die. So that 42% where the 24-hour prognosis determined management Mm-hmm. Or that sixty percent where it greatly or moderately affected decision making of some sort. That's mm-hmm. really important, especially in the acute phase when you can actually set someone up for a good recovery. Yeah. Like if you think someone's going to do really poorly, you don't want to drive in at three a.m. to do that salvage cranny. Yeah, a hundred percent. Yeah. So that's how that could be a self fulfilling prophecy. Sure. What I'm getting out of what you're saying about this study is that back in '86 when they did this survey. A lot of neurosurgeons had specific prognoses that they made kind of right away when the patient came in, and that had a pretty big effect on how they managed the patients. That's what the paper seems to show. Yeah. So a lot of neurosurgeons are making decisions on prognosis, and they're actually changing the outcome based on it. How good are they at predicting prognosis? Well, there's a paper that came out about six years later that shows we have a pretty negative view of what happens with these patients. <laughs> you sense that in the in the hospital. Right. Someone comes in GCS3, people are going to be like, mm, why are we even doing this? Yeah, they'll look at the comatose person and say, is this really ethical what we're doing to this person, you know? Yeah, yeah. 
especially because if, if you have the outlook that it's going to be a negative outcome, then of course it makes sense to say, why are we putting this person through this suffering when it's not going to benefit them? Yeah, 100%. But here's the problem with that mm-hmm. is... In 1992, they looked at outcomes in patients with severe head injuries. Okay. They looked at neurosurgeons and neuroradiologists' perception of what an outcome was going to be. Uh-huh. Versus, like, the reality? Like, they had the actual outcomes? Right. Okay. How, <clears throat> how good did they do? So, the neuroradiologists were apparently really optimistic. <laughs> They're like, this, you know what? You take out this hematoma, this guy's going to do great. Uh-huh. Interesting. What this paper showed was that 59% of neuroradiologists' predictions were accurate with respect to dead versus vegetative, mm-hmm. severely disabled, which mm-hmm. presumably is some sort of uh, conscious state, yeah, and independent slash full recovery. And the radiologists only had age and the CT within the first 24 hours of the injury. Okay. And at the same time, 56% of the neurosurgeons' predictions were true on the same scale, okay. w- where they got things like clinical exam lab results, whole picture, including the radiology results. What the interesting thing, though, here was that 41%, keep in mind, that's a big number, 41% of neuroradiologists uh, were off on their prediction. But they tended to err on a more optimistic side. (laughs) They figured that the good person was going to do better than they did. Uh And 44%, again, big number, of the neurosurgeons uh, erred, and most of the time it was on the negative end. (laughs) Yeah. They figured the person was going to do poorly when they didn't, when they didn't. So overall, it, it sounds like like 60 per, 50, 60%-ish of the radiologists and the neurosurgeon's predict, predictions were, were okay on this like rough Glasgow outcome. Like, are they going to be dead? Are they going to be long-term, like vent, long-term dependent? Or are they going to be okay? And 60% of the time-ish is when the clinicians were right. That's better than like a third of the time, better than randomly guessing. But I mean, that's still Only not so good. a little better than a flip of a coin, right? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's still a lot of people they're getting wrong. Right. And, th- and they did have some other things that kind of stuck out too, uh, uh-huh. looking at this paper where um, those over 70 universally poor prognosis. And by that, we mean dead within a year. Hmm. They listed some specific CT findings, uh, midline shift, uh, blood in the basal cisterns, intraprenchymal hemorrhage into the ventricles. Sure. But that first paper that we talked about where they were surveying neurosurgeons, that was just a survey. Yeah. What about real clinical situations that say, hey, you know what, like you have this patient in front of you. What sort of management decision are you going to make? Uh-huh. And so there, that was actually looked at in the late 80s, too where they were looking at the withdrawal of care in the ICU in general. Now, this is the, this is not just limited to neuro, but in the, in the general ICU. Sure. How uh, good are we at predicting people dying in the ICU? Right. And so you have a false positive rate. When I say false positive, the... Um, that the, the physician says he's going to die when he doesn't actually die. Right. And that happens 11% of the time for mm. when saying he's going to die. Wow. So that in, in this study, the diagnosis was made that they think he's going to die, the patient is going to die, um, and they withdraw care, and then the patient just lives without the, without the intensive care? Is that No, no. What happens for this one is they make a prediction, but they still provide the care. Ah, I see. Interesting. And they find out, actually, he's going to live. Interesting. It mm. happened 11% of the time when it was just physicians. Now, when you had the physician and nurse agree mm-hmm. that the patient's going to do poorly, you find out that they're still wrong 7.7% of the time. Yeah. Better. You got you got more information, but not still not 100%. Yeah, and actually, and that 7.7, that's the, the confidence interval was 7.7 to 16.7%. Yeah. So that's 
potentially one sixth of the time on, on on the other end of the scale. They tried to do a you know a regression and see if they could find any mm-hmm. better way to make a decision here, and they still found out that they couldn't really get any better. Yeah, with all these predictions, I mean, we're doing okay. We're it's not like we're randomly guessing. We have some information, but there's a pretty significant chunk of people that it seems are fooling us. The people that we think are going to do bad that actually end up doing okay or better than we thought. Yeah. So I guess the question is now, you know, th- th- that was, that's 30 years now. <laughs> yeah. Man, right, I mean, old. 80s, 80s is a long time. Yeah. But so are there, are there any new changes? A lot has changed, especially with regard to management and yeah. management options, MRIs, what have you. And th- so there's an author, Rizzoli, that uh, published out in an emergency medicine journal, okay. uh, BMC Emergency Medicine. And they actually had the exact same issue mm. <laughs> it was in the early 90s. So kind of like how we were talking about how neurosurgeons overcall negative outcomes. Mm-hmm. Uh, in that same sense, they're going to be good at calling negative outcomes. We're sure. fairly accurate when they do happen. So sensitive, but not specific. The Rizzoli in his paper showed that they had a similar issue where they're reasonably sensitive at predicting a negative outcome, but they are not specific at it. These clinicians, especially those that deal with the patients in the early phase of their care, have a high false positive rate when they're trying to determine if someone is going to do poorly after TBI. Yeah, meaning if you come in and the physician says, oh, I think you're going to do great, then, I mean, you're probably going to do great. People who come in who are walking and talking generally don't collapse and die. Like it, right. you, can, you can usually pick out the people who are going to do okay or do really good, but the people who they say, mm, I don't know, I don't think, I don't think your outcome is going to be so good, some of those people still do great. Right. And it's hard to pick those people out. Yeah, and we, we clearly just haven't figured out the factors that would determine that. Yeah, the people who come in looking really bad and end up doing really good. Yeah. Or, or uh, I think more important is uh, we know a lot of the factors that will point out a poor outcome, mm-hmm. but when you try to apply it to an individual patient, yeah, then it becomes a different issue, and yeah. you can't, you might not necessarily be able to predict with the accuracy you would need to make a life or death decision for any individual. Exactly, that's the key point. What we're trying to do is to decide in a lot of these people should we withdraw care, and I mean that's a that's a big decision. Right. So we know we make decisions based on what we expect to happen. Mm-hmm. That was the first couple of papers we talked about. If we don't know what to expect, then those decisions are going to be poorly informed. And especially if we expect a poor prognosis, we might fail to help somebody that could have done well. And yeah. we won't know if that person could have done well unless we help them. Yeah. So the question comes down to what can we predict? Is, there, <laughs> is this all just in our head or can we actually predict anything? Right. And it turns out we can for a group of people, potentially. So what evidence do we have right now? So there is a lot of evidence. Uh There is one great meta-analysis that puts a lot of it together. So the Brain Trauma Foundation puts out a paper on um, the prognosis for severe TBI. And the important thing about this is that it addresses things that you can see early on. Okay, cool. It summarizes the literature very nicely and gives really good probabilities for these findings. We'll go through the, the factors that they found had an effect on prognosis. Sure. So the first and foremost that everyone can easily identify from a medical field is going to be Glasgow Coma Scale. Yeah. Easy to use and pretty good way of classifying people. And if someone comes in all gorked out GCS3, I would bet they're going to do poorly. You think so? <laughs> yeah. What does so the data that say? It's not universal. Huh, <laughs> we'll yeah. talk about that. Yeah. 
and the, the, the but the great there's a couple great things about the scale. Mm-hmm. Everyone knows it. It can be universally mm-hmm. applied in a in a very early manner, and this is always done after the ABC is already taken care of. But the problem is, you, you often get at least at least in my experience, mm-hmm. you'll get somebody that's been intubated, sedated, and paralyzed. Exactly. <laughs> and they're yeah. like, oh, GCS three. Yeah. Of course. <laughs> yeah. I have had several people who are treating in the trauma bay and they're doing a neuro exam and it's, yeah, it's right after we intubated. They're paralyzed and they're like, well, they're not moving. And I'm thinking in my head, yeah, I just paralyzed them. <laughs> of course they're not moving. Uh, yeah. So yeah, it obviously has to be contextualized. And a lot of these, yeah, a lot of these trauma patients aren't even going to be stable enough to get a real GCS on. Oh, for sure. Because to get the real GCS, one of the qualifications is they cannot be sedated. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I know that when we're examining patients in the morning, you always (laughs) tell, you always tell the nurse that's manning the sedation, Uh the the nurse that has to, you know, hold the guy down (laughs) and starts kicking. Yeah. Yeah. Tell him, all right, I need you to hold sedation. <laughs> but he goes crazy. I know. I know. I, yeah. But you need to hold sedation. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so some of the caveats here is they look at the best GCS after 24 hours. So not the GCS in the trauma bay necessarily. Hmm. The best after 24 hours. Okay. I think one of the one of the things to recognize about the GCS here is that it gives an idea of the likelihood of a good outcome. So we're not too far off in saying that GCS3 is a bad indicator. Mm-hmm. But we are far off in saying GCS3 means going to do bad. Yeah, like no chance. Right. Like, oh, they show up. And I guess, and we're, we're saying after, after a day, after 24 hours in these studies, right? Mm-hmm. So we have a, a lot of papers here. I'm just going to list them off. Fear Inside 1998, GCS3 indicated 65% death. Marshall 1991, GCS3 indicated 78.4% died. 7.2% though only had moderate or low disability. Wow. So four or five. A small number, but more than one in 20. Yeah. Wow. From GCS3 to low disability. And keep in mind, moderate still means independent in their activities of daily living. Yeah. And that's a lot of people. Right. 1989, uh, an outcome scale of four to five. Again, that moderate low disability, 23% for mm-hmm. that. That's a lot of people. Right. The rest of the studies that they name in this guideline are basically more the same, where you have mm-hmm. some people show universally poor outcomes, but other people show, hey, you know what? We actually had a good cohort of patients that did fine, despite this measure being so poor. Yeah. So if I was kind of roughly summarize the numbers there, what I'm seeing is GCS3 after 24 hours, they're kind of as bad as you can possibly think. 60, 70% of them end up dying. A lot of people, but nowhere near 100%. Right. And maybe even something like 5, 10% of them actually end up doing well. Right. I mean, that, that percentage of people seems to be able to take care of themselves. Yeah. That's independent. I mean, yeah. So if I see someone GCS3 a couple days after their injury, just looking at that data, I, you know, that, that's not predictive enough where I'm comfortable withdrawing care, for example. Right. That, that is nowhere near enough to act on a desire to withdraw. Yeah. So what else do we got? So the next most important factor is actually age. Sure. We all see that. Yeah. That's, that's huge. Yeah. Uh, th- there's a, we know just anecdotally, there's a huge difference between the severe TBI in a pediatric patient or a guy that's 20 mm-hmm. years old versus an elderly person at 80. For sure. And, and you can see you can see how predictive it is. It seems to be a, a better predictor than GCS alone. Those greater than 50 to 60 years old, 70 to 80% die. 
Yeah. Up to 90% seem to require some sort of assistance with activities of daily living. Sure. And these are severe TBI patients here? Yes, all, all severe TBI. Like patients that show up to the trauma bay with a Glasgow coma scale less than or equal to eight. Okay. So that's how we define severe TBI. Okay. But actually the interesting thing with the age too is you really mm-hmm. see its effect when you look at the PEDS data. Severe TBI results in an outcome of 50%, Glasgow outcome scale of five. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that does step, that does go down stepwise. Once once you hit your teens, then you only hit 7% sure. outcome of five. Sure. And that's one study in 1985. Yeah. And I'm sure those numbers would be better now. Yeah, I'm sure it's better now. (laughs) Yeah, I'm I'm always going to remember the one gunshot wound to the head. Full MCA stroke. Uh Uh-huh. Her only complaint is sometimes her hand moves funny. Yeah. But she can use it. (laughs) Yeah, I know. It's some of these, some of these outcomes are just crazy when you look at them. Yeah. So GCS is giving us a little information. Age is giving us a little, little more information. Not talking about huge predictability here. Right. And then unfortunately for some of these papers, they didn't combine the two things. Yeah. I, f- I have a feeling that if you were to combine age and GCS, you might get some pretty important numbers. I'm sure. Yeah. So what do we got next? Next, the thing that everyone hears about, blown pupils. Sure. What's your pupillary reflex? Before we talk about this, you have to realize there's a lot of reasons, you know, that someone could have a blown pupil. <laughs> yeah. That don't have to do with horrible brain injury. A hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. So you got... Um, it could be anything third nerve. It could be first nerve. It could be uh, you can have orbital or eye trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you, ha- you have these patients, especially elderly ones, mm-hmm. that have the cataract surgery. And oh, then yeah. people's are all messed up, not really <laughs> reacting the way it should. Yeah. I, I remember a couple of patients who have, I've had not neuro patients, just patients were, were doing like a normal surgery. And then they're waking up and they're like waking up slowly because they're old, you know, so they're waking up slowly from the anesthetic. And I, you know, I, I just open their eyes quick and look at them because your eye, you know, your eyes can tell you a lot from just, just anesthesia. Oh yeah. And I, I'm, I'm looking at their eyes and I, I open one and they have this massive blown pupil and <laughs> I start freaking out like, oh man, this guy has a blown pupil. But then, you know, I look back at his chart and oh yeah, he just had an eye surgery and oh, well that's why his, his pupil was screwed up to begin with. I think my favorite is the children's hospital hmm. where you get called on a totally normal looking kid. Uh-huh. But he has a huge pupil on one side. Yep. Yeah. And then you find out, oh, that he got his hypertropium uh, nebulizer right beforehand. <laughs> yeah. We get that a lot with uh, scopolamine patches too. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. It'll either go through the skin, or if you scratch it and then rub your eye, it'll totally blow your pupil. Right. And yeah. I feel like uh, my end for that, for that, at least the nebulizers, is four. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. So there's a lot of things that can cause a, a poor pupillary yes. reflex that is not severe TBI. Yes. Usually you're not talking if you have a blown pupil right? from a severe TBI. <laughs> mm-hmm. And they did find that bilateral or unilateral unreactive pupils uh-huh. is a factor. But even a single blown pupil, like bilateral un- uh, uh, unreactive pupil seems to be universally poor. And by universal, you know, as universal as we've seen so far, yeah, 90% bad outcome. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which is... Still not as close to 100% as we'd want. <laughs> that, I mean, that is kind of crazy to say, like, you have bilateral blown pupils and 10% of those people actually still, like, survive and have some sort of consciousness and stuff. And look at the times for those studies, too. So yeah. 1976, 95%, one or two. Uh, 1980, 90% Glasgow, one to two, so dead or vegetative. Yeah. As you get to 1991, all of a sudden, that number drops mm-hmm. to 74% mm-hmm. dead or vegetative. You look at the studies that are looking at blown pupils, 
in the 70s, we have this 95% mortality all the way to the 90s, you all of a sudden have a 70% mortality. And like we were mentioning before, that's the trend with overall severe TBI outcome as well. You know, that in the 70s, for example, CT was just getting started. I don't, in the mid 70s, it still was not universal around. I mean, it it had just been invented in, I think, the early 70s. EVDs, for example, were just coming out around that time. Like the original, like Lundberg studies were early 70s. We were just starting to get modern ET tubes. You know, ventilators were relatively new. ICUs were relatively new. Like there's a lot of stuff going on at this time. And a lot of reasons for that number to improve. Yeah. So that, that. Those, those 90% mortalities, I think that's probably a pretty big overestimate. The, the newer studies, okay, 70% mortality for bilateral blown pupils, 70% more, I mean. Well, mortality or vegetative. Or vegetative, yeah. So 70% poor outcome in bilateral blown pupils. I mean, 30% of people, that's a lot of people. Yeah. So the numbers are quite a bit better for a unilateral blown pupil. And mm. that's, that's, I would say, is the most common surgical indication for us. I would say bilateral is where you start questioning it. Unilateral, you say, all right, we got to do this. And that's actually a much better number. So that 1991 study was a 34% had a one or two uh, Glasgow outcome wow. scale. So those people might do okay. <laughs> yeah. And, of course, you have bilaterally reactive pupils. Half of those patients with severe TBI get to Glasgow outcome scale four to five. So it's pretty good. <laughs> yeah. Um. So that's it with regard to pupils. The next one has to do more with secondary injury. We can't fix a neuron that's dead, uh, but what we can do is prevent the cascade that follows those events Mm -hmm. from causing other neurons to die. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It turns out that one of the main prognosticating factors is whether or not they become hypotensive at some point in that acute phase. This has a 67% positive predicted value of Glasgow outcome scale one to two. Sure. And then if they're also hypoxic, 78%. So them having any episode of hypotension after severe TBI, 67% of them do poorly. Right. And even looking at single episodes, yeah, that increases your risk of a outcome scale of one to two, you know, mm-hmm. vegetative or death, mm-hmm. from 17% to 47% for sure. just a single event. Yeah. So that's uh, a correlation, right? The, you know, these people, that could just be people come in hypotensive. And the people that are hypotensive are obviously more severe injuries. Does it actually help if you fix it? If you fix their hypotension, does that seem to make them have better outcomes? So that's the interesting thing. There's not much data on that part. Yeah. But with the idea of what the pathophysiology is, you you figure it does. But this is one of those things where there's a paucity of data. Yeah. I don't think any IRB would approve (laughs) (laughs) someone stay hypotensive. We're going to randomize you to not fixing your blood pressure. You you better have a really good reason because I know there are points where they have permissive hypotension. Yeah, yeah. Um, Not not in severe TBI. No. That's usually not what we do. Definitely not. All right. So hypotension is a big uh, predicting factor. Next, Mm -hmm. Next is CT findings. Now, this is where you kind of have to get a bit bigger than abnormality because 90% of CT exams will show an abnormality. Sure. And, of course, in this case, your prognosis is generally more favorable if you have a normal CT. And a normal CT does not mean no blood. Mm -hmm. A normal CT means no blood, no indicator of increased ICP or anything. So what are the indicators that you're going to see on a CT? So it looks at hematoma, presence or absence, where that hematoma is, how many hematomas. (laughs) That's the 80s version. Yeah. The more recent version is basically mass lesion, diffuse injury, and whether or not you're going to do anything about it. Okay. I'm guessing the multiple lesions do worse. 
Yes, the multiple <laughs> lesions do worse. And the newer models, uh, one of the more important things too is mass lesion producing midline shift that you don't take out. That seems to be the worst prognosticating mm. factor. Interesting. So I've, I've seen all these things on CTs and like patients that come in with bad looking brains. Are these actually associated with bad outcomes in the data? Is there anything in particular that's worse? So if you have a global cerebral edema, that appeared to have a Glasgow outcome scale one to three, 84%. Okay. Global cerebral edema with significant shift, that's 94%, one to three. So that's wow. mortality, vegetative state, also severely disabled. Yeah. Global cerebral edema with significant shift, that sounds really bad. Yeah. That kind of corresponds with the general gist that we seem to have a general brain swelling. That's pretty bad. That means the, the brain's probably pretty banged up, and those people do pretty poorly. If you have shift on top of that, you know there's something really bad going on. But I would say probably our most common finding is traumatic subarachnoid hemorrhage. Now, I feel like we oh, get yeah. consults about this daily, mainly for <laughs> mild TBI. Yeah. But in the setting of severe TBI, that's a scale that's designed for aneurysmal subarachnoid. Yeah. But if you have a Fisher 4 for traumatic subarachnoid, that's 78% positive predictive value for an unfavorable outcome. And in the ambient or supercellar cisterns, that's, again, 77% unfavorable outcome. Interesting. For midline shift, 78% poor outcome with shift greater than 5 and age above 45. Okay. And a 70% poor outcome with midline shift above 50, 15 millimeters. In everyone? Yeah. If you're older, a half a centimeter shift is a pretty bad predictor. Right. In everybody, a shift of one and a half centimeters is Which pretty is bad. Which is huge. Yeah. Yeah. Although I have 100% seen people with one, two centimeters of shift and they do fine. That's the funny thing is with regard to just looking at degree of shift, if you take out some of the extremes, that doesn't appear necessarily to be correlated because, because you have different papers with different results regarding that. In 1984 with an author, Selig, they didn't find an association with midline shift and outcome. Yeah. But then, you know, another author in 1991, Quat Rochi. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or Rochi. <laughs> 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 I'm pretty sure that's Quat Roki, though. That sounds okay. like an Italian name. Quat Roki sounds good. Please record yourself saying this name so I feel bad about myself. <laughs> yeah. if, if we're mispronouncing your name, send it in and we'll, we'll re-record it. So he found that midline shift and poor outcome correlated directly. Sure. So you have one paper that says there's no, no difference. One paper says it's worse. It sounds like it's not really great data below 15 millimeters. Okay. Something that we know that we would know anecdotally, if you're in the neurosurgery world, the mortality mm-hmm. is much higher in subdural rather than epidural hematoma. Mm-hmm. That's often hypothesized due to you know you're injuring the parenchyma with the subdural, but epidural could purely just be outside yeah. the dura, much just be an artery pressing on brain. Yeah. If you look at mechanisms of injury, subdurals come from higher energy impacts, so yeah. there's going to be more damage in a subdural. Right. The outcome after an intraparenchymal hemorrhage mm-hmm. contusion is is less well defined especially with regard to surgery. But here's the sum total of it. Like, there's a lot of numbers associated with all these things that, that I was saying. Lots of numbers. CTs predicting favorable versus unfavorable outcome well, in 1995 at least, 66% of the time. Okay. Kind of in the same ballpark as what we're talking about with, with other predictors. Yeah, or even a worse predictor. <laughs> here's the thing, though. When you look at this data, it would be nice to say, you know, these are the independent probabilities of independent factors, but they're not independent. Yeah. So you can't combine the probability of a poor outcome with one with the probability of a poor outcome with another yeah. if you have two separate yeah. findings. Yeah. 
because they're not independent. All these things we're looking at to try to predict the outcome, they're all correlated with each other. The patients who look bad and the patients who have bad CTs and the patients who have blown pupils, they're all pretty much the same population. And that's predicting poor outcome in this good chunk of people, but not everybody. Right. And so what you got to try to find is saying, okay, so each factor independently, there isn't a single thing that says it's going to do poorly. Yeah. So what you can do is try to figure out a way to combine these factors. And a large cohort that was used to try to make a calculator called the impact calculator. The, okay. This is a database that compiled data from large perspective investigations like the crash trial, which is the biggest trial in neurosurgery. 10,000 mm-hmm. patients showed us not to use steroids. Mm-hmm. It's got a total of 65,000 patients. Wow. So that's a lot of people. It's a, it's a huge thing. It should be a great regression. Sure. And it also includes some other factors that we didn't discuss, like glucose or presenting hemoglobin. Mm -hmm. So this is a model that you put all these inputs into. What does it try and predict? It's a prediction model for six-month outcome after severe TBI. It looks at predicted probability of six-month mortality and unfavorable outcome, which generally seems to be a Glasgow outcome scale of two to three. Sure. Like people that are not going to be independent in their activities of daily living. Um, so what I did was I grabbed a bunch of values. I, th- I try to think of the worst possible outcome. So that's a 99-year-old <laughs> male with a GCS of three that is hypoxic, hypotensive, <laughs> with a non-evacuated mass lesion, uh-huh. uh, with traumatic subarachnoid, with an epidural mass, <laughs> <laughs> with a glucose of three, <laughs> and a hemoglobin of six. <laughs> that's as low as it would go. Yeah, <laughs> I, I don't think he's going to do good. Right. I I agree. (laughs) I would say this is pretty close to 100% poor outcome as possible. But impact tells me somewhere between 96 and 98% unfavorable outcome. So 87% mortality. Yeah. Okay. So he's probably going to die. That makes sense. But the thing that gets me is the one in 25 chance that he does fine, <laughs> that he's independent in his activities of daily living. <laughs> I mean, that's, 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 pretty, that's pretty absurd. I, I don't know if the model's 100% accurate right. in, that, in that prediction, but just the, fact that. That it, yeah, just the fact that it spits out, mm, you know, he might make it. So this all boils down to we don't know early on. Yeah. We, don't, we might not know well enough to make good decisions unless a person's already said, hey, you know what, like, if I have any disability, I don't, that, I don't want that. Yeah, we can, get, we can make kind of rough, broad statements, but really making definitive this, this person is not going to do well, it's just really hard to pin down. So when can we tell how they're going to do? Yeah. There actually is some guidelines about this in patients with disorders of consciousness. Mm-hmm. And before we go into the details of this, can I just take an aside and talk about the definitions of the words that we use for disorders of consciousness? Because I think they get misused a whole lot, right. even, and the, and even vo- among physicians. And the vocabulary gets really important here because that's what dictates what the research papers talk about. Yes. And a lot of people who are out of it, who have these disorders of consciousness, they lump them together and, oh, they're in a coma or, you know, or they're vegetative and they don't really actually use the specific terms for the correct patients. So in broad strokes, to me, I break them down into coma, vegetative state or, or unresponsive wakeful is the same, the same sort of thing. Um, and then minimally conscious. And so coma means you're not conscious, you're not responding, you're basically not doing anything. That's kind of what people think in the popular press of they're in a coma. They're okay, they're not responsive. But then vegetative, vegetative means you actually do have sleep-wake cycles. You actually wake up and you actually can do sort of automated sorts of things. You can do 
automatic sorts of facial expressions, automatic sorts of movements, um, but you have no signs of consciousness, either internal or external. You don't respond to any stimulus. You don't respond to commands. You have this wakeful state. That's where the term unresponsive wakeful comes from. You're not, you're not responsive to any sort of stimulus, um, but you do have this wakefulness versus minimally conscious where you still have a disorder of consciousness. You're still not alert, not awake, but you are occasionally at least following some simple commands or at least responding to the simple commands. Yeah. And that's really important because I, I will say before n- learning the definition of vegetative state, you know, you think of what's in the news. When you get into these popular discussions of vegetative state and some people might talk about like, oh, you know, they're in a vegetative state, like they're eyes closed on a ventilator. Like, no, that's, that's not a veg, that's a coma. Yeah. You know, <laughs> a vegetative state, they're, they're awake and they're doing stuff and they. Two different things. Yes. Yes. So with all those vocabulary terms in mind. Yes. There are some guidelines for prolonged disorders of consciousness here that were put out in 2019, this year. And this this follows some data for rehab. Now, this is where it goes back to it's important what phase of care you see these patients. Because the rehab folks are with them for months. Yeah. It's where it starts becoming important. Are you having sleep-wake cycles? Are you responding to stimulus? What does that actually mean? And yeah. actually, those are actually meaningful things in this context. And we'll tell you why. So... One of those guidelines that comes out at first is when discussing prognosis for 28 days, one month, you must avoid statements of endorsing a universally poor prognosis. Yeah, because that first month, it's hard to make definitive statements. Right, and there's not an insignificant number of people that wakes up and becomes independent after these points. Mm-hmm. Now they talk about you can use serial behavioral evaluations, EEG reactivity, MRI to try to uh, try to try to assist in the twelve month prognosis. Sure. Try to get a, a number associated to it, but it's not going to give you anything definitive. Yeah. Another point of the guidelines: given the frequency of recovery of consciousness after twelve months in patients with traumatic vegetative state or UWS, they wanted to stop using the term permanent vegetative state. Yeah. Instead of calling it chronic, the evidence behind that was 27 patients with uh, longer than one year follow-up, 14% had recovery of consciousness between one and three years. Wow. Yeah. Now, that does not mean independent. That just means conscious. And now the picture gets even more clouded when you start talking about minimally conscious state. Now, this is where you were talking about following commands, sometimes saying yes, no. Mm -hmm. Not much more than that, but still conscious. If you get to that point before five months, Mm. that actually bodes pretty well for you. Yeah. 20% of those patients return to work or school within one to four years. Wow. So this takes a long time to figure out what's going on. Yeah. So I'm just, I'm making up a scenario in my head. There's a patient who comes in, severe TBI. They're doing, you know, GCS3, nothing for their first couple weeks they're in the ICU. And then a month or two, they go out to the floor and they might be, they might be like, for example, vegetative state at that point. Um, you know, they might wake up and we can extubate them and they don't have any consciousness. They're not following commands. They're not, they're not with it, so to speak. Um, and then, you know, a month or two in the hospital, they go out to their long-term care facility, they go to the nursing home. And then, you know, four months out, they start getting to be responsive to commands. You're like, hey, and you see like their eyes move towards you. Those people, 20% of them could return to school or work. I mean, yeah. you know. It's a wild outcome. Yeah. Kinda, but it but takes a couple of years to, to really show. 
Right. Or at least that's what that's what our current data says. It seems like the only definitive statements you can start making about prognosis is that vegetative state after 12 months, you can start saying, okay, this is not going to turn out well. Do we have specific numbers on that or it's hard to pin down? So we have numbers, but they're only for a small set of people. Uh-huh. So like there's one paper, Luaute et al. in Neurology 2010, um, they had one loss to follow up, nine died, and two remained in vegetative state permanently. Hmm. That was at two, three, four, and five year follow up. Yeah. But just small numbers. Right. This is, that's an N of 12. Yeah. Another paper that was cited for the guidelines were out of 17 patients that were not following commands at 12 months, eight followed between one and five years out. Hmm. And that's just following commands. Yeah. The biggest study for the sort of long-term outcome in vegetative state uh, it was in Neurology 2010 with Estraneo. There were 50 patients that were unconscious for a mean of 11 months, plus or minus five. Ten of those, 50, so 20%. Hmm. Recover consciousness. Seven of those 10 were from traumatic brain injury. They recover consciousness between 14 and 28 months out after the injury. Mm. They shared the characteristics is that they all had pupillary reflexes, bilateral pupillary reflexes okay, yeah. when they presented. But the downside is they all had only minimally conscious state or the DRS 14 to 17. When you say 14 to 17, that's extremely severe to severely disabled, like okay. one step above vegetative. Okay. So what you're saying is those 10 patients who recovered consciousness, all of those patients were minimally conscious or extremely disabled? Yes. When they woke up? Yes. Okay. So we had... Or at least to the length of their follow-up. Yeah. Whatever which, that was. Which is a couple of years out at least. Yeah. So this study has 50 patients that were all unconscious to start out with. They were unconscious for a year, basically. And out of those patients, it seems like a good number of them woke up one to two years out, but they never had any sort of meaningful recovery beyond severe disability. Right. That's what this paper seems to show. Okay. So that's starting to give us a little bit of a guideline there. Yeah, so that seems to be the closest we can get to a definitive statement concerning when you start having a poor outcome. Hmm. You can always tell someone that has a good outcome when they have the good outcome, but someone that looks like they're having a poor outcome, that's the part that seems hard to say, this is going to stay this way. Yeah, even that's like, that's the best evidence we have, and that's saying a year out when you look really bad, most of those people stay that way, and some of them still improve, but not usually to any significant level. I mean, that's still that's still kind of rough language, and that's a year or two out you're saying that. It's, uh, it's going to matter for only a set of people that say, I don't want to live like that. Yeah. If you have someone that says, you know what, life at all costs, if I'm conscious, that's what I want, then it's still, it's still, <laughs> still cloudy for you. Yeah, still have no idea. So this sort of prognosis only matters definitely yeah. for individual patient management when you start looking at people that say, I don't want to live with any disability. Yeah. So if, if you were the kind of person that said being, being conscious but severely disabled is an outcome that I care about, you could be comatose for a year and we still couldn't give you any sort of real definitive answer. Yeah. Or at least one definitive enough uh, to potentially act on. Yeah. Yeah. That's tough. Yeah. So what are the big takeaways from the data as, as you read through it? From what I see, it looks like we have good predictors that can be used to give a probability of a prognosis. Mm-hmm. 
you can look at a set of findings in the acute phase and say this person has a roughly an X percent chance of recovery. Yeah. But when you then take that information and you apply it to a single patient very early in their phase of treatment, mm-hmm. that might be not a great idea. Yeah. You can roughly then say who's going to do good. Saying, hey, do uh, maybe we need to revise our risk model in our minds. Yeah. <laughs> that being said, the main things that seem to apply are each person needs to decide what, be, what would be acceptable to them mm-hmm. in terms of recovery. For sure. Because a lot of that data that we were talking about, that long-term data, mm-hmm. um, from the neurology, like long-term disorders of consciousness guidelines, you have to take that with a grain of salt because they'll celebrate recovery and recovery of consciousness. But, you know, the, 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 those people sometimes are still often very severely disabled. Yeah. And if a person doesn't want that, then that's, that's, that's a totally different issue. Yeah, yeah. There's some rough guidelines we can give about approximate outcome in terms of disability. And so if you have really definitive personal beliefs on what you want in the disability spectrum, maybe there's some guidance we can give you there. But like we said in the beginning, one of the really tough things about this whole issue is just from a resource perspective, I mean, we have to make these decisions sometimes, even early on. If we have these severely disabled people at some point, we have to say at some point, you know, I don't think this is going to work work out so well when people come in looking really really bad we don't do every single intervention forever on everybody how good are we at those predictions you know at least right now not great one of the things that they're going to start looking at now especially that group that was looking at disorders of consciousness yeah they want to look at trajectory of recovery huh yeah rate of recovery not just stepwise you were here right now and then uh, you might be in this range over here yeah they might say, all right, what can I predict about where you're going to end up based on how you change day by day? Thinking to my own practice, though, the first couple weeks in the ICU, the first month in the ICU, these really, really poor looking people, yeah. it's still really hard to make any decisions at that point. And there are decisions you got to make. It's, it's yeah, tough. I would, I would say after going through this, it's going to be really tough to withdraw on somebody really early on. Yeah. Unless it's one of those total train wreck cases, you look at them and you say, hey, you know what? Like, this person is very old. They still have an extremely poor exam. Yeah. They might not be brain dead, but yeah. I don't think that there's going to be any sort of meaningful recovery from this. Yeah. That's about the only situation that I would say, you know, that that's something that I would feel comfortable withdrawing on. <laughs> yeah. So, tomorrow night, you're on call, you're in the trauma bay, a guy comes in, 100 years old. GCS three bilateral blown <laughs> pupils and his family's with him, And they're like, we will accept any outcome. As long as he survives, we will be happy. Let's do it. Let's do <laughs> Let's do it. Who knows? Yeah. It's, it's tough. We don't have all the data. And unfortunately we, we can't predict a lot of the outcomes really well. We do, we do, we do the best we can, but I think, I think one thing from the healthcare provider perspective is just to understand a lot of the people that come in looking really bad, a proportion of them actually end up doing well, good, you know, better than better than you might expect. You know, you gotta you gotta be careful who you write off. Right. We don't know a hundred percent. We do the best we can, but we don't know a hundred percent yet who's gonna do bad. Yeah. Well, thanks for going over that, Carl. I, I think that was really helpful, interesting. I mean, it's it, it's un- unfortunately not a really definitive answer, but it's good to know where we stand on the data right now. 
Yeah, that we only have one definitive answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks it, research. <laughs> again, again, you know, it's it's good to know what what we have. So, uh, thanks for tuning in. Um, like always, you know, go go on the website if you want references to these papers. I'm going to try and put up all the references there. Um, if you have any comments, questions, please reach out to us. Our contact information is on the website freshbrains.wtf. Please subscribe if you have a chance, and otherwise we will see you next time. Midline shift, for example. Is midline shift actually associated with worse outcomes? Yeah, it is. Okay. Oh, wait. <laughs> for example, the guys that are there that are dealing with the, uh, the physicians that are there. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, the, you know, the guys. <laughs> the, only dudes. The guys, the guys that are sitting there. <laughs> <laughs> hey. <laughs> we're gonna, we're going to cut that out. <laughs> no, that stays there. <laughs>